0: heard about a king who enjoyed spending time with his loyal subjects. He would dress incognito where no one would identify him and no one would recognize him and He would walk out among the townspeople One day he met a man who was in charge of the fire for the castle and he would build the fire and he would make sure that the red coals were taken to each of the rooms that would heat up those different rooms. And so his day would be spent all day just stoking the fire, taking the red coals away, sweeping up ashes. So you can imagine how he would look being covered in ash and soot and all of that stuff. And the king met him and began visiting with them. And it became a daily routine for the king when he dressed in incognito to go down there and visit with this man who stoked the fires for the castle And as he went down there and sat with them, the man would share his lunch with them, uh, usually just a crust of bread and a little bit of water. And they would just visit together and be together. And after a period of time, the king said, boy, I just can't go on like this anymore. I've got to let him know who I am. And so he sat down beside the man one day and he shared with them that he was the king. And he said, because of who you are and because of my a uh, light like for you. I would like to give you anything in the kingdom. I could give you a job. I could give you a home. Whatever you want, I will give to you. And the man who had stoked the fires, he was just kind of silent and just kind of stood there for a moment. And so the king wondered if he really recognized and realized what he was saying. And so again, he just stressed that I'm the king. Anything in the kingdom you want, I'll give and, and you know, just name it and I'll give it to you. And the man thought for a moment longer, and he said, you know, as I think about everything that I could have, the greatest thing is having you come each day and spend time with me. You can give me everything in the world, but the thing that I don't want is to lose our friendship. That is the most important thing. This morning we continue our journey through 2 Corinthians verse by verse. And this morning we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And I know as we look at just being one verse, it's kind of hard to believe that we would camp out on just one verse. But as we come and as we look at this verse, this verse is so rich with things that we can look at, things that we can appreciate. And so we are going to camp out here on this passage. Last week when I was looking at it, and I, we looked at it. Verses 1 through 8, I was going to add it to verse 8 because it's in that paragraph with verse 8, but as I began to unpack it last week, I knew there was too much, so I thought maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, but then as I began to unfold this verse, I was on about page 6 and I realized that, hey, maybe it'll just be one verse this week because I know some of you want to be out of here before 5 tonight, (laughs) so this is where we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Because it's such a short verse, I'm just going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, and stand with me, if you will. I'll read it aloud, and uh, you guys can follow along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, nothing special about the English Standard Version. I used to read the New American Standard all the time, and then I read somewhere that the English Standard Version is at a sophomore in high school reading level. And I thought if my job is to make the word of God more understandable, that gives me a head start. So here we go. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, God's word reads this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Father, we are grateful for this day that you've given to us and grateful for this chance to look into your word. And I pray, Lord, as we look into your word, as we look into this verse, that this verse would look into us, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would challenge our minds and remind us, Lord, of the, of the riches that we have, not because of who we are, but because of your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for him today. Just give me the words to say In order for me to say those words, you have to give me the thoughts to think. So touch my mind and my heart and allow me to proclaim what you'd have us to hear. Not the ramblings of some man, but Lord, let us hear from you today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this passage, our outline is pretty simple. He was rich. He became poor. We became rich. That is what we're going to be looking at today. And then we're going to partake of communion following that. Now, as we begin this passage this morning, the first thing we see is that he was rich. That he was rich. Look at verse 9 again there. Uh, It says, for you know. Now, as we look at this passage, this is just a connection that Paul is doing. Paul has been speaking to the people of Corinth about the area of giving. He began this in chapter 8, verse 1, and he was speaking about giving to the Jewish congregation that was in Jerusalem. They're in Corinth and southern Europe, uh, and Jerusalem obviously is in Israel, so it's a distance away. The people in Corinth were Gentiles predominantly. Uh, The people in Israel were predominantly Jews. So there's a different category, a different race of people, a distance here. And Paul has been speaking to the people of Corinth about giving to the Jews and the importance of giving to the church of Jerusalem because of the famine that was in the land, because of the persecution that was taking place. And so that's what he's been encouraging them about. Now, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, as Paul encourages them, he gives them the example of the Macedonians. Look at verse 1 there. It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia... For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the people of Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia, which were Thessalonica and Berea, they were giving in abundance to this effort, this Jewish effort. And so Paul is using them as an example and saying they have nothing, And yet in their their poverty, in their affliction, from the abundance of joy, they are giving. And so he was sharing their example to encourage the people of Corinth uh, to give as well. And evidently the people of Corinth at one time had been giving, but we see in 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul encourages them to give, take it up at the beginning of the week and give. But evidently something had happened where they stopped giving. Either they just lost sight of the mission, they just lost sight of the goal, or some false teachers came in and began to redirect those funds somewhere else. But either way, the church of Corinth had paused in their giving. Uh, Look at verse 6, it says, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So what had started, Paul was encouraging them to pick it up and to continue again. So after Paul gives that example of the Macedonians to the people of Corinth, he turns and he gives them another example of generosity. He gives them another example of giving. He says, for you know. Now, the word that's used here for know is not just head knowledge. You know, we know those people that have head knowledge. They, we call them book smart. All right, they're book smart but they really have no common sense, all right? Paul says, you know, and this word that he uses here is a experiential knowledge, an experiential understanding. He knows that they have more than just head knowledge. He knows that they have experiential knowledge as well. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was something that they knew. It was something that they had Uh, experience, they had an experiential knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ. These people that Paul is speaking to knew Jesus. They were believers. They had tasted the grace of Jesus Christ. They had received the grace of Jesus Christ. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it says, uh, accordingly, we are, sorry, it says, for you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this word grace, it's kind of an interesting word as we think about grace. And I don't know if you've ever been asked, what does grace mean? When I hear that question, what does grace mean? I can't, I can't help but think about, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing grace. That's, that's what grace is. But as we think about this word grace, grace begins to unfold in the Old Testament. And the word that's used for grace in the Hebrew that's translated grace of the Old Testament speaks about a compassionate response from, from someone who's superior sharing that response to someone who's inferior. That is kind of the way that, that grace is fleshed out in the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, we see grace as being fully developed. We see grace as being something that's, that's fully realized. Uh, this is John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace can be defined as God's unmerited favor in the giving of his son. Grace, the acronym for grace is is God's riches at Christ's expense. Because that's what grace is. Grace is the giving of Jesus Christ being offered as a perfect sacrifice. Without God's grace, without Jesus Christ, salvation cannot be received. This is Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace. You have been saved. Notice that mercy and grace. Are two different things. Mercy. Is God withholding the punishment. That we deserve. But grace. Grace is the giving to us a blessing that we do not deserve. So when we think about mercy, it's not getting the judgment we deserve. And when we think about grace, it's getting the blessing we do not deserve. That is grace and what grace is. And grace is provided. Uh, grace provides us acceptance with God. If God did not give us grace, if God did not exercise grace, we would not be accepted before him. Grace enables a believer to live for God. Grace gives us every spiritual blessing. God chose by grace to cancel our sin debt by sacrificing his perfect son in our place. That's grace. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, God took our sin and placed it on Jesus Christ Christ took our sin to the cross, and he paid the ultimate penalty for our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin, death. Jesus did that for us. And then his righteousness was given to us. That's grace. That's grace. That's what, that's what grace is. The penalty for our sin paid, and then the righteousness of God given to us. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 again. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now, when we think about Christ and we think about the richness of Christ and the wealth of Christ, this is speaking about his pre-existence, the pre-existence of Christ. Jesus' beginning was not in a manger on Christmas morning." John 1, verse 1, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus existed in eternity past. He was there in creation. He was there in the beginning. Genesis 1-1, when it began, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Jesus was there. From eternity past, he's been there. Now, as we think about the riches of Christ, we don't have to look any further than Philippians 2-6 to see the riches of Christ. Though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, as God, he had need of nothing. Need of nothing. Rich in glory, rich in power, rich in authority. The cattle of a thousand hills he owns. There's nothing that he's in need of. That's the richness of Christ, eternal in his existence, dependent on nothing outside of himself for his own existence. That's the richness of who Christ is, lacking in absolutely nothing. We think about some of those who are rich financially in the world. And whatever they want, they can go and they can buy. They're lacking in nothing. Jesus Christ is the richest in the universe. Because he's eternal. He doesn't even need someone from the outside to give him life. Because he has that for eternity past to eternity future. That's the wealth of who Jesus Christ is. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. For though you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Mm -hmm. Now, as we think about him becoming poor, some would suggest this is speaking of his Bethlehem experience. You think about Jesus being born to this young couple uh, as they are in Bethlehem, as they go, uh, born in a stable, laid in a manger. Uh, when he, the purification ceremony, they brought a dove because that was what was recognized. That was the lowest requirement. That's what those who without very much financial wealth, that's what they could bring to provide for the, for the purification. It would be sampled for the purification of their child. And so we look at that and we think, man, he was just born into a a couple, into a a position of of a lack of wealth, and so he was poor in that regard. But I don't think this is what this is speaking about. I don't think it's speaking about him being born in in a manger in Bethlehem. Some would suggest that his Nazareth upbringing was, was something that was poor. I think about him being the son of a carpenter. Uh, you think about him probably not having an overly wealthy childhood. But, you know, he was probably uh, in an average family. It was probably an average family. Uh, during his during his ministry, we, we read about his ministry, and we read that uh, in Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, he didn't have a house in his ministry. He didn't have a home. So he really wasn't that well off during his childhood and during his years in ministry. So, so that must be what this is speaking about. But, but I don't think that's what this is speaking about. I don't think that's the, the poor, that he became poor. I don't think that's what he's speaking about here. We would think, well, maybe the, the thought of him going to Golgotha and, and hanging on a cross, he was res, arrested and crucified and all of his belongings, his clothes were taken from him and they were divided among the soldiers. And so as he hung on the cross, he absolutely had nothing left. The cross was not his own. He was laid in a tomb that belonged to somebody else. He didn't even have the grave rights. He didn't even own his own grave. So some would say that, that because he was on that cross, hung as, as just a common criminal, but that's what this is speaking about him and being poor in that way. But I think when we look at that and we think that that is the poor that this is speaking about, we forget about what Jesus Christ left behind. Because the things of this earth do not compare to what he left behind. To be in that, that place with the Father having perfect communion and leaving that behind. Philippians Uh, summarizes everything with us, for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient (coughs) to the point of death, even death. On a cross. When we look at this, we see the staircase that Jesus took to come down, giving up his wealth, giving up his richness to become poor. He emptied himself. He did not stop being God. He was 100% God while still being 100% man. But he set aside his independent use of his attributes to step into creation. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He took on human form. He was obedient to the point of death. And it wasn't just any death, it was death on a cross. You think about those steps that he took and how he came down to that. You look sometimes at an anthill and just say, man, wouldn't it be amazing to be an ant if I could just take the place of an ant? I think that's kind of similar. And it might be, but it's not really close. Because the creator of all things, who's outside of time, who's outside of creation, who's... Limitless, stepped into creation and became limited. Think about Jesus being omnipresent, present everywhere, and then all of a sudden taking on human form, being in one place at one time, ministering to 12 rather than worldwide. Jesus did that. Though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was rich with all that heaven had and the deity, he set that aside and stepped into his creation. He became poor. He became poor. But you know, because he became poor, we become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich so that creator stepping into his creation this was not a This was not a social experiment. He didn't do this for a documentary just to see how it would impact people. This wasn't some kind of social experiment just to see if it would turn out for good or if it would turn out for bad. There was a purpose. So that he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He gave up his riches for our poverty so that we might become rich. This so reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is that double imputation Our sin imputed to Christ. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So that Christ, as he hung on the cross, took on our sin. God made him sin. Our sin was placed on him, and he stood in our place with our sin upon him. And then his righteousness was imputed to us so that we could be in the righteousness of Christ so that we could stand in the presence of God. Because in our sin, we cannot stand before the presence of God. Because the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But instead, he imputed his righteousness to us. So that we could have that relationship. So that we could be in the presence of Christ. That's what he's done here. He's taken his rent, He's left behind his riches. He's taken on human form so that we could have his riches. Without that, without him doing that, there's no way for us to enjoy those riches. Because in our sin, in our depravity, it's an impossible thing. It's an impossible thing. And the depth of our poverty is great. We don't often like to think about that. But the depth of our poverty is great. Man, in their lost condition... We are helpless, and we are hopeless. This is Romans 3, 9 through 12. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Every time I read this, I think about that two-year-old that used to be in our house. Anything that you shared, there would be an argument. No, no, this is the way it is. No, this is the way, but, what if, but, that, that, Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. We've already charged it all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. But, no, not one. But, no one understands. No one seeks for God. But, all have turned aside. But, together, they've all become worthless. This is what Paul is saying. He's speaking of our. Depravity. He's speaking of that condition of poverty. Without Christ, we are helpless and hopeless in that condition. Man is spiritually destitute. Matthew 5 3 says we're poor in spirit. Ephesians 2 1 says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 5:10 says we are born enemies of God. Spiritually. Without Christ. We are bankrupt. We have nothing without Christ. But, we have been rescued from poverty. When we turn to Christ for salvation, we receive his riches. He rescues us from spiritual poverty. His riches are transferred to our account. Our spiritual poverty is removed. He gives us every spiritual blessing. This is Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we become children of God, we receive an inheritance. We go from being spiritually bankrupt to having an inheritance. 1 Peter 1.4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the inheritance that we receive. And it's an inheritance that's out of this world. It doesn't compare. Nothing in this world compares to the inheritance that we have Because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He rescues us from our spiritual poverty. Because of his wealth, because he was willing to leave behind that wealth and become poor, we can become rich. But we have to turn to Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus Christ, we remain in our bankruptcy. We remain destitute without Christ. So I have a question for you this morning as we think about this, as we think about Christ leaving behind his riches, becoming poor so that we could become rich. Have you exchanged your spiritual poverty for spiritual riches? <coughs> Maybe you're here today and you keep thinking that, hey, I can work for my salvation. I can earn it. I can get better. I can do it. That's just spiritual poverty. Seeking to do it on your own you'll just remain in spiritual poverty. But it's only when we turn to Jesus Christ realizing that he's the one that bails us out of our spiritual bankruptcy. It's only through his riches that we can be rescued. And we need to turn to him. And we need to say, Lord, in you and you alone is my salvation. There's nothing that I can do on my own. I have to trust in Christ and Christ alone but we have to turn to Jesus Christ. I can't make you turn. Your parents can't make you turn. Your kids can't make you turn. You've got to make that turn on your own. Turning to Jesus Christ and realizing that he's your only hope because he is your only hope. There is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is nothing else. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. So there you have it. We see that he was rich. We see that he became poor. And we see that he became rich. That we became rich. Now, as we look at this passage and as we, as we think about this, we're going to take a moment this morning. And I thought it would be a good time for us to reflect on what Jesus Christ did for us. And by us, I mean us as individuals. Uh, We as a church, uh, we don't hold back communion for anybody who's not a member of the church. If you're not a member of Medina, you don't have to be a member to observe communion. But we do ask that you're a believer because communion is a celebration for us as believers to gather together and to recognize and celebrate What Jesus Christ has done for us. We celebrate the riches that he left behind and becoming poor so that we could be rich. This is our celebration of that. So maybe you're here today and for some reason you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to give you an opportunity today to trust Christ as Lord and Savior, just realizing that on your own you're spiritually bankrupt and it's only through Jesus Christ that you can have salvation. And so I'll give you a moment here this morning to turn to Christ and recognize your need and accept him as Lord and Savior before we partake of this. But make sure that you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, just let the elements pass by you. Don't partake of them. Just let them pass by. Uh, We won't judge you. We won't look funny at you. But just allow that to take place. It's hard to believe that, and I've been thinking about this all week, It's hard for me to believe that our Creator would be willing to step into His creation to redeem us. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for Him just to wipe out Adam and Eve and start all over? Less headache, uh, less bald-headedness. I mean, it would have worked a lot better. But you know, God already had a plan. Because Ephesians tells us that before the creation of the world, He had a plan We see in Genesis 3 that God, when sin happened, that God had already made plans to send a Redeemer. God had a plan. He knew this was how it was going to unfold, and he did it. He did that for you, and he did that for me. And that's mind-boggling to me, to think that. And by turning to Jesus Christ and realizing that he is that free gift that takes away the sin of the world, By realizing that's him and accepting that payment by faith, we can have forgiveness of sin. I don't know why Jesus would do it that way. I don't know why God would do it that way. But that's what he did. There was no perfect sacrifice. God stepped in and gave us the perfect sacrifice. Not to just cover our sins, but to take away our sins. He did it himself. And that's what we have an opportunity to celebrate today. That's what we have an opportunity to think about today and focus on today and to remember today. First Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 says this, Paul speaking to the people of Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So here in this moment, I'm going to pause for a moment. We're going to use this opportunity to pray. Maybe... You're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Today's the day to do that. This is the moment. This is the opportunity for you to do that. Maybe you're here today and you've got some sin in your life that you've been hanging on to. It says we need to examine ourselves. We're going to take this opportunity just to examine ourselves. Let God search our heart. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin that we've been hanging on to that we need to set aside. I'll give you an opportunity to set that aside today confess it to the Lord, ask for his forgiveness. And then I'll have the ushers come forward and they'll hand out the elements and then we'll partake of it together.